Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Marissa Knodel, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm in the studio today with Professor Andrew Guzman from Berkeley Law School. Professor Guzman has written extensively on international trade, international regulatory matters, foreign direct investment, and public international law. His new book, Overheated, The Human Cost of Climate Change, takes climate change out of the realm of scientific abstraction to explore its real-world political and social consequences. Professor Guzman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So in your preface, you describe climate change as the single greatest international challenge of this century and beyond. I'm curious about how you became interested in climate change and what led you to this conclusion. The how I became interested is really in the question is that I do believe it's the biggest challenge of our of my generation, indeed generations on either side of me. Um, what led me to that conclusion was um, nothing specific. I knew it was an issue. I uh, became interested in working on it as an academic topic. But as I as I started working on it as an academic topic, I became more uh, aware and more convinced of the magnitude of the problem that uh, in my mind, uh, or I came to view it as a larger problem than lots of the other very severe problems the world has. And that motivated me not only to write about it, but ultimately to write about it in a a book aimed at a popular audience. Mm -hmm. And the focus of the book, as I understand it, is to overcome what you call the most important barrier to a more sensible and determined response on the part of the public and to persuade people to act by increasing public understanding of the human cost of climate change. And so what I was curious about is how how you define and distinguish human costs from other categories, say environmental costs, or how you make how you make that distinction, why you choose to focus on the specific subjects that you do in the book. So the the subtitle is the human cost of climate change. And and what I want to get at there is speaking to impacts that human beings will feel themselves. And I mean to distinguish it from physical impacts or impacts in the natural, other impacts in the natural world. So that means I don't think it's persuasive to people when you say you must act because there is ice melting in the Arctic. And I think it's slightly more persuasive, though it's still not very persuasive to people when you say you must act because polar bears are threatened. Most of us will never lay eyes on a polar bear outside of a zoo. Um, I don't mean to say those things are important. This book is intended to uh, address what I saw as a gap in the public understanding of climate change. And I think that gap is that people don't appreciate how what seems to be a modest change in the climate in terms of change in temperature, at least, uh, will in fact have pervasive and enormously damaging effects on our society, on the structures we rely on to live, uh, on on our way of life. So do you think part of it is a proximity issue? I mean, you said, yes, it's hard to connect to, let's say, a polar bear or uh, melting sea ice for, let's say, someone like, I mean, I've been to Alaska, but many people don't, haven't had that opportunity. Um, So do you think, let's say, for example, for people living in New England, something like 
uh, Hurricane Sandy changes that perspective. I think that's right. And indeed, simply to say there'll be more hurricanes, I think, is not always enough to persuade people what that means. Um, the people who were in, uh, in the Northeast for Hurricane Sandy have a different reaction to the idea that they might get hit by a hurricane than people would have before that. Uh, it's that people have complicated lives. They've got a lot of things to do. They got to get their kids to school. They got to pay their mortgage. They got to um, try and get a promotion. They got to pay the bills. Uh, people don't spend their time trying to understand problems in the world that don't affect them directly. Uh, in a way, this is trying to say to people, look, this is going to affect you directly. And it's also trying to provide them with a relatively straightforward way to come to understand this problem. So someone who is interested in climate change, but has no particular expertise in the area, um, isn't prepared, as most people aren't, to spend hours reading scientific journals or trying to parse together the information themselves. The book hopefully gives them somewhere to go that is readable, that is accessible, um, that is, and that communicates the problem in a realistic uh, and accurate way. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, weather is not climate change. And trying to get people to connect to the somewhat abstract term climate change, um, there are going to be a lot of serious consequences that, that you address. And I guess, do you worry about sounding quote unquote alarmist? Or maybe that isn't the right word. Maybe you're just trying to be realistic about the issue and do you find that persuasive when you're trying to get people to connect to this issue that's that's a very important question it's it's um i don't want to be perceived as unduly alarmist i say at one point very early in the book it might even be the first page i say uh something like this all seems alarmist but that's because we should be alarmed that is i don't want to be hyperbolic i don't want to exaggerate the risk but i also don't want to minimize it. I don't want to deny it. Um, so I've tried both in my own work that is, as I've thought about these problems and written about them, I tried to be as responsible as I could. I tried to be accurate. But I've also tried uh, to guard in other ways against exaggerating impacts. The most obvious one is the operating assumption of the book is that uh, average global temperatures will rise by two degrees over this century. That is by almost any credible account, a conservative estimate. If you were to, to uh, talk to climate scientists, read what climate scientists write, and come up with your best guess of how much temperatures would rise, it would be some bigger number. Um, and I made that choice deliberately so that I would, in that sense, be rigging, um, rigging the system against myself, that it would be uh, the risk of overstating the problems would be diminished. Um, and unfortunately, I can do that because the damage is so substantial that even if you pick a relatively conservative uh, estimate of the extent to which our climate will be changing, you still get quite massive harms. I really appreciated your discussion about how the lack of public understanding about the human cost of climate change has a lot to do with misinformation, disinformation campaigns um, that are designed to breed doubt about the science of climate change. And uh, I was wondering how much you think the public is really being misled and by who? And do you think that this rises to the level of conspiracy? 
So I, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I don't think there's some massive conspiracy. I don't think they meet every Thursday in a smoke-filled room. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a deliberate and well-financed attempt to muddy the water. Uh, I think it's financed by people and organizations that have a financial interest uh, to resist action. So I do think people are being misled. One of the reasons that I wrote the book I did, that is this book is not about deni the denial industry or the fights over whether climate change is real, in part because there are loads of books about that, some of them excellent. There are even meta books about why it is that we're fighting about why, whether or not there's climate change. Um, and uh, those are important questions. And indeed, resist, pushing back against people who claim it's not happening is a very important task, but it's not the task I took on for myself. I am not persuaded that this attempt at denying the reality of climate change in whatever form it takes is really what's holding us back. I think when you talk to people who are not invested in the question of climate change, they don't have a reason to deny it or to believe it. They're just people. To the extent they say, I'm not sure if it's real or isn't it true that it's exaggerated, I think that part of that is really the thing I'm trying to get at. Part of that is that they're not persuaded that it's that important. As distinct from they're not persuaded it's real. And again, this goes back to a few degrees of warming, which is what we expect as a global average, is really easy to misunderstand. Um, almost all of us experience that much temperature fluctuation from morning till afternoon where we live, and certainly from winter to summer much more. So this idea that that's a problematic is, a little, is counterintuitive to some degree. And so I think if people come to be persuaded that the harms are large, the scientific doubt fades. I think we see that post-Hurricane Sandy. I think we see that uh, post the drought that the United States uh, had in 2012, that when people observe the harms, which could exist absent climate change, they don't say, I never believed the science of climate change, and so I assume this hurricane would have happened anyway. They very quickly go to, holy cow, these are really bad events. Um, what's going on? And then the climate change, I think, becomes easier for them to accept because I don't really believe they have formed an opinion on the science independently. I think it's more like, it seems like a lot of talking, but I can't tell how it affects me. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about human movement in response to climate change, partly because I've done some personal research on this topic, and so I find it really interesting. But I think if you're talking about the human cost of climate change, the idea of being displaced from your home is a very strong, personal, visceral image. And that can, I think, vary from here in the United States and being displaced from your home for a few days because of a storm to, as you discuss, um, people in some small island nations or in coastal communities in Alaska being permanently displaced because of sea level rise or erosion and storm surges that make their homes uninhabitable. And um, I read a really interesting paper on the victimization of, quote unquote, climate refugees. And there are a few quotes I wanted to read that I wanted to get your response on about. Climate refugees, quote, appear as subjects who seem to speak directly for the climate, unquote, and become a visible entity by which the public can engage with the climate change discourse. As evidence of climate damage, the climate refugee image is, quote, sustained as a sort of victim commodity 
providing news value, political point scoring, and a human embodiment of climate change for Western environmental activists concerned with saving the planet. And the second quote is, what we want to demonstrate is that we are not happy to be labeled victims, and where is the glory in being titled the first environmental refugees? And so I think what these quotes are getting that is it's they need help. Um, vulnerable communities need help in response to in climate change, but they don't want to be treated as if their homes aren't worth saving or being treated as victims. And what is your response to that? So I, th I think I read those quotes, hear those quotes the same way as you do. It's, it's a statement that climate change refugees are real people with real concerns and shouldn't be held up as some sort of avatar of the importance or threat of climate change. And that's fair enough. I don't have any dispute about that. But on the other hand, we talk about a lot of people who are going to be affected by policy or by events that way. We talk about victims of gun violence, and, and we think we're, we're able to do that without somehow um, denying them their personhood. We talk about how workers should be relevant to the discussion. The situation of workers should be relevant to the discussion about the minimum wage. Um, I think climate change, are of the, climate change refugees are like that. We, don't, we know who some of them will be. There are many who will come along the, who we can't anticipate exactly where they'll be. Um, and we know there'll be a lot of them. We can't talk about that problem, which is a real problem, a uh, massive problem, without talking about climate change refugees. So it is true that it's important to understand uh, when talking about people who will be harmed by any set of events, that they're real people with real concerns, with real priorities. Um, but it's also true not to turn away from unpleasant truths. And the unpleasant truth is um, it is a certainty that there will be large numbers of people displaced from their homes uh, due to climate change. It is a certainty that all those, that they will not all be able, we will not somehow do something that will prevent that. So the question of what to do with them will come up. Uh, we should want to have fewer such displaced people. Uh, and, and the reason, at least the reason I talk about them is to make that point, to make the point that people who are displaced from their homes will themselves suffer tremendously. Uh, the displacement of those people from their homes will have all kinds of knock-on harms to nearby communities, indeed to communities all over the world. Um, for example, national borders. It's not, it's not obvious that national borders will, will be able to continue to operate when um, large enough numbers of refugees are trying to cross a border uh, on foot, essentially. Uh, the way in which borders normally work ceases to be effective. You need much more aggressive strategies if you actually want to stop them from crossing, strategies that we would from which we would recoil. Uh, it also calls into question um, the way in which we keep the peace. There will be all kinds of conflicts and violence as ethnic groups are pressed one up against the other that used to be separated by territory. It will cause uh, problems in parts of the world that don't think they're going to be affected that much by it, like the United States, where sea rise will have effects, um, but probably not devastating effects for the United States directly. But uh, a tide of humanity will be created who have nowhere to go, who are deeply vulnerable, um, and that will show up in our country in myriad ways. Just one is that uh, it is simple economics that as the supply of something increases, the price of it falls. What we're going to be increasing the supply of is desperate, vulnerable people who can be exploited. And that means things like human trafficking and all the horrors that come with that will be more common and will be more common in the United States because there will, there will be countless people who 
will be just um, ready, essentially, uh, for um, for predators to take advantage of. Do you have any policy prescriptions then for a way to prevent or help mitigate that future possibility? I mean, I feel like a lot of disaster-related programs in the United States are reactionary, like FEMA's after the event has occurred. Is there any way to be more proactive about that type of situation? Well, I'm not sure this is a satisfactory answer. The, the, the proactive strategy is to not let the earth warm so much uh, to avoid generating these refugees. Once you have the refugees uh, or displaced people, there are displaced people until they cross a border and then we call them refugees. Uh, once we have those people, then we have real hard problems. Uh, think of it, we obviously have displaced people now um, and refugees. The, the go-to strategy of addressing this problem currently, which is almost certainly the right strategy, uh, is we try, at least in a perfect, in, in a in a good situation, we try to provide these people with some sort of ability to survive, to live, uh, hopefully as humanely as possible, and then we wait until we can return them to their homes. That's the dominant way in which we deal with refugees internationally, and it allows us to essentially uh, wait out a crisis like a civil war, where. The, a large number of the people who've been displaced don't have to find literally new homes in new countries in places where they don't speak the language, or they don't know the culture, or their, their, uh, their communities have, uh, don't exist. That's not going to be possible for people who are displaced by rising seas, which make the land, be, the land becomes water, becomes flooded. It's not going to be possible in areas where uh, the, the geographic space is no longer friendly to the same number of people living there. If it becomes... Uh, much harder to grow food. People will have to leave. We can't return people to those places. So the number of displaced people actually understates the problem because our our off-the-shelf strategy for dealing with displaced people and refugees, which has served us uh, moderately well uh, through the 20th century at least, um, is not going to work nearly as well in this context. So it would be nice to have strategies. I don't know what they are. They would demand Everyone has to live somewhere. Everyone has to be somewhere at any given moment. Um, countries aren't enthusiastic about welcoming into their society large numbers of foreigners. And if that's what, if that seems like the conflict we're going to get, we're going to get lots of people who have nowhere to go, and the only place they can go requires them to be accepted by other countries. And the history of other countries being willing to do that is not, does not generate optimism. I want to shift uh, topic focus a little bit to something that I don't know as much about, but I found really persuasive in your book, and that's the question of uh, water and drought. And you talk about drought and environmental decline in Darfur and how it escalated uh, violent conflict in a region that was already tense due to a number of other historical and ethnic factors. My question is what other regions or countries do you see climate change and environmental degradation uh, igniting and exacerbating already existing conflicts and what regions or countries cause you the most concern? So I'll answer that, but first let me say that the general answer is everywhere, at least everywhere in which there's an existing sure. source of tension. Um, and if we're thinking in terms of violent conflict, then it's everywhere where you would look at now 
um, and say, even if climate, the climate is not changing, uh, there's some risk of conflict that I worry about. And that turns out to be a lot of places in the world. Um, but let me identify two in particular that are uh, worrisome and should be particularly worrisome to Americans, not because Americans are the only ones we care about, but we're in the United States. One is uh, Indian Pakistan. Indian Pakistan have a long history of not liking each other, going back to when they both became independent in 1947. Um, and they have, but they're tied not just by the fact that they're next to each other, they're tied together because the Indus River flows from India into Pakistan. And the Indus River is the only reason Pakistan is not a virtually uninhabitable desert. It's Pakistan's really only me meaningful supply of water. That river comes from uh, the Himalayas and is fed by Himalayan glaciers, which like glaciers all over the world are shrinking. As glaciers shrink, the value of the water they provide uh, is diminished. There are more floods during the wet season and there are more, there's more drought during the dry season. The consequence is that Indian Pakistan, both poor countries, Pakistan more so, uh, will have less water or at least less water when they need it. So how does that get resolved? Imagine that you're the Indian policymaker here. Here's your choice. And we know this is going to happen. We know this choice will be faced by India. I have to make a decision about how much water I let pass onto Pakistan. And if I let Pakistan get something that is equitable, whatever that means, we could fight about what's equitable, but if I let Pakistan get more, um, citizens in my country will die. More citizens in my country will die. If I use more of that water myself, that is, if India uses more of that water, uh, I can save the lives of many Indian citizens. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge of Indian policymaking. Uh, there's a temptation to say, let Pakistan deal with its own problems. From the Pakistani side of the border, obviously, the opposite is true. Pakistan will, will have less water we know, or less useful water. We know that for sure because the river will simply be less valuable. Um, so even if India is extremely fair, Pakistan will be worse off. And they don't trust India. And there's, again, a history between the countries uh, that from the Pakistan side of the border makes them feel justified in not trusting India. So there's a concern, even if India is being fair, Pakistan will be skeptical about the fairness. Um, and certainly if India decides that it's not in the business of saving Pakistani lives, uh, Pakistan will object. So Pakistan will need more water. And it will need more water in order to save the lives of many, many of its citizens. So what are its options? Well, the obvious option is you send a diplomat to Delhi. The whole history of that relationship makes it's possible some, something could be worked out. It's not impossible. But the whole history of the relationship makes that a, a big lift, a challenge to just work out diplomatically a way to share the pain from this uh, uh, climate change induced loss of value in the river. Option B, you might, you know, if you just go down the list of this classic list in international relations, option B would to be imposed some sort of economic pressure on India. Pakistan's far smaller than India in absolute size, in economic size. It's also far poorer. So it has very little ability to influence India through economic measures. Option three might be um, the use of conventional military style threats. Here again, Indian, India's military is larger, it's better equipped. Pakistan just is no match for India in that form either. What Pakistan does have that India cannot, which is sort of an equalizer, is Pakistan has nuclear weapons, as does India. Um, there is open conversation in Pakistan, uh, in the media, for example, of the fact that 
in the present in the context of a serious water crisis, which is what we're headed for, uh, the nuclear option has to be on the table for Pakistan. That doesn't mean we're going to get a nuclear war. It doesn't even mean we're going to get a nuclear standoff. But the risk of that standoff, which exists today between India and Pakistan, is dramatically larger in a world of climate change. So we're taking an existing problem uh, and, a, and a horrendous possible outcome of a, a, some kind of nuclear confrontation, and we're making it far more likely because, especially from the Pakistan side, the very life and death of the country could be what's on the table. And countries do desperate things when they face desperate situations. So that's one example. Another example that has a slightly different flavor uh, is Nigeria. Um, Nigeria, like much of that part of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, is going to be uh, devastated by climate change. But I don't want to talk about how it's going to affect Nigeria. I want to talk about how it's going to affect the United States. The United States imports about as much oil from Nigeria as it does from Saudi Arabia. Um, and that, so that oil flow is very important in the United States. That gives us a security interest in Nigeria. The United States also has concerns about terrorism, um, and in particular terrorism from uh, sort of an extremist Islamic uh, place. Nigeria has a, a history of, well, it has serious ethnic tensions within its borders. It has significant economic disparities, and it has something of a history of violent insurrections and violent internal insurgencies. Uh, it also has an extremist, violent Islamic movement. So. What's going to happen in Nigeria that we know is going to happen is climate change will make life far more difficult. Uh, agricultural production in Nigeria will be devastated. Uh, to give you an idea, something like 50% of rain-dependent crops will probably, the, the, the yield will probably fall something like 50% by 2050. So everything in Nigeria becomes bad or worse. And ask yourself from the American perspective, which is already investing resources in not just Nigeria, but much of much of Africa, um, for security reasons. Does that make you feel comfortable? Do you like the idea? Does it bother you at all that Nigeria will become uh, poorer, more uh, uh, more difficult to live in? That the ethnic tensions will surely become more acute? Um, and the answer is, it can't possibly make you feel good because that threatens both the supply of oil we get from Nigeria, and increases the risk that Nigeria becomes a terrorist breeding ground. So. There again, those problems exist in Nigeria today. There's a risk that the oil supply could be disrupted. Indeed, it's been disrupted in a variety of ways in recent years. Not fully disrupted, but disrupted. Um, and Nigeria is a place where the United States worries about terrorism. Climate change is not going to create those problems, but it's going to turn them up. So that's the sort of problem that climate change creates from a security perspective. This is something that in, in security circles they refer to as a threat multiplier or a risk mm -hmm. multiplier. It takes an existing problem and dials it up to some higher level. That makes it difficult to either predict where the problems are going to come. We don't know if India and Pakistan are going to go to war. We don't know if Nigeria is going to become a terrorist breeding ground. Um, but it, if you look across lots of such risks, and there are many, um, we have some confidence that some of them are going to, be, going to sort of explode in our faces as a result of climate change. Well, perhaps it's time to turn to some potential solutions, or at least ways forward. Um, in the fall, the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy hosted a conference called um, Climate Change Policy Without the U.S.? Question mark. And there was a really interesting panel there on geoengineering that I covered. And I admit to have, prior to the panel, being very, very skeptical 
about geoengineering. And you mention it uh, towards the end of your book. And I was wondering if I could just get, um, again, your perspective on that. Do you really think that we're going to get to the point where we'll have to put reflective aerosols into the atmosphere? Well, geoengineering makes me very nervous because it seems to me it is tailor-made. Nobody's done this on purpose, but it seems to me it's tailor-made to allow us to pretend there's a, there's, a, there's a solution coming, that the cavalry is just over the hill. Technology has revolutionized the way we live our lives, both as measured over um, the millennia of human history and the last two decades. Uh, technology will surely be relevant to the way we respond to climate change. Right now, there appears to be no credible technological way to address this problem. Um, that in, in, the, in a, any significant amount reduces the need to curb our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I worry that this vague promise of future, a future solution uh, will prevent us from acting. I also think it's important that when we think about the proposals that are on the table, uh, we recognize that they're problematic. Uh, not necessarily fatally flawed, but imperfect. They have, uh, it, it's a little bit like um, subjecting yourself to experimental surgery there's a point at which you might be willing to do it, but you'd be far better off with a treatment that we know works and that doesn't involve opening up your body and risking all those effects. So that's true of the uh, technological fixes uh, currently on the table. They, uh, uh, they either have massive, well, they all have massive side effects. Um, some of them are unproven. We don't even know if they'd work at all. Most of them only address a symptom rather than the disease. Uh, so we have to be honest about these. I don't, I don't want to be dismissive of them. I suspect, ultimately, that some technological um, advances, some sort of geoengineering or some kind of other technology that we don't currently have will be relevant. But we don't want to engage in uh, an experiment in which the stakes are the globe unless we know what we're doing. And right now, were we to do so, we wouldn't know what we were doing. Can you elaborate a little bit more on some of the, those other technological fixes? Sure. So there's really there's two that dominate uh, the discussion. One is the idea of putting um, sulfites into the atmosphere, which serves like a giant mirror in a way of reflecting mm -hmm. uh, heat. There's so that it's conceivable that would work. Um, it has a whole bunch of negative side effects, um, and it only and, and what it does is just prevents energy from entering the atmosphere. It does not change the uh, concentration of carbon dioxide of carbon in the atmosphere. So, for example, it does nothing to deal with the acidification of the ocean, which is a massive problem that is going to cause all kinds of trouble. Um, it's also one of the things that you have to keep in mind what it means to ha adopt this as a strategy. So, if we don't curb our emissions of greenhouse gases, and if this is the strategy, the more the higher the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more we have to engage in this intervention. So it's a, it's, it's a constantly accelerating treadmill we're on, so that we're constantly putting more of this stuff up in the atmosphere to offset the greenhouse gas emissions. That means all the side effects keep getting larger, the world is dimmer, um, the oceans become acidic, and so on. It also means that if, this being a human institution, anything should ever go wrong if the machine that's putting it up 
should fail, it won't obviously be a single machine, but if the mechanism, the system for putting it up in the air should fail, the, uh, the temperature would rocket up dramatically, much faster than it is now, because we would already have all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And this remedial solution would cease to function because those sulfites fall out of the atmosphere relatively quickly. So we would be setting ourselves up for a never-ending commitment to engage in this particular strategy um, over many, many years. And it takes a certain amount of optimism about the human condition to, to assume that we could pull that off. Um, and it would only take one, I don't mean one mistake as in for one day, but it would only take that system to fail once for some period of time for, uh, for catastrophic outcomes that are far beyond what we're thinking of now in terms of climate change, because what we're seeing now, the most, the fastest change in climate, um, certainly in human history, maybe ever, uh, will seem like nothing compared to what you'll get if you've already primed the atmosphere to have all these greenhouse gases, and then you remove these, so to speak, giant mirror uh, reflecting the, the sunlight. So one non-technical solution would be to put a price on carbon, and there are several ways to do that um, that you go over in the book. Uh, but one, I guess, criticism um, of the of that type of solution is that it's going to increase energy prices, and there are a lot of low-income families that may not be able to adapt to those high prices easily. Um, how would you respond to that? That's a fair comment. Um, the The starting point is that increasing the cost of the pollution we're emitting is has to be part of the solution. Um, it, you could actually do this theoretically in a top-down kind of way through regulation rather than through prices. Mm -hmm. But in fact, then you'll have the exact same consequences, which is that the poor in society will, will face more burdens. Uh, the, if you had a carbon tax, or for that matter, cap and trade, but it's easier to think of a carbon tax. If you had a carbon tax, uh, the appeal of it is you can get people to more, more closely pay the actual cost of what they're doing, that is including the cost of harm to the environment. Now, a carbon tax raises the price of carbon, no question. That's the whole point. It also raises money. It could be done in a revenue-neutral way. That is, one way to do it is put in place a carbon tax, which raises money, and then give the same amount of money back to people. You could do that in lots of different ways. You could just give everybody in the country the same amount of money back, or you could just reduce marginal tax rates, mm -hmm. or you could give that back disproportionately to people at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, the problem of the distributional concerns um, are concerns that are present in our society, and we make societal decisions about how much we want to provide support of whatever kind to, uh, to people who are poor in our society. There's no reason why a carbon tax makes those decisions harder or less satisfying. The uh, point of the carbon tax is not to raise money, though it will do that. The point is to change the relative price of carbon. So when you, once you've done that, you can have whatever policies you want to address other concerns you might have. There'll be competing concerns. One will be the one you mentioned that uh, raising the cost of energy will hit poor people, um, perhaps disproportionately. There'll be a competing concern that raising cost of energy will impact the competitiveness of our businesses. Mm -hmm. How that gets sorted out is a political question, an important political question, but it seems to me that it doesn't cause us to come back and question 
whether we actually have to raise the price of carbon. Well, thank you. I have a few questions that go beyond the scope of the book. And one of them is related to the conference that Yale Law School and the School of Forestry and Environmental Science Studies are hosting this weekend called New Directions in Environmental Law. And the theme this year is Empowering Voices. And one of the panels is focusing on this campaign that the Republic of Palau has started seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on the question of the responsibility that states have to not cause transboundary harm to another state through the production of domestic greenhouse gas emissions. And um, as an arbitrator of international disputes, I was curious to hear your thoughts on the campaign, um, on the question just in general, and then specifically on the responsibility for uh, transboundary damage and whether the advisory opinion through the ICJ is the right route. So island states are in the are these uh, in this incredible position where they've contributed zero to this problem or sufficiently close to zero that that's the best right. estimate, um, and they will suffer massive harms. Right? There's a you would normally you, it's hard to think of another global issue in which the Maldives and Tuvalu come up in the discussion, and the reason is because they're suffering this very tangible, very immediate harm. Indeed, you can you can watch it happening now. So there's no doubt that that threat is real. Um, International law uh, is one way to try to address that. I think um, we have to recognize the strategy for what it is, which is a political strategy, not a legal strategy. That is the effort, which is true of lots of things in international law. The effort is to draw attention to the problem, not to generate a legal solution to the problem. No reasonable person could think that even if the ICJ were to say there's an obligation to not, what, emit greenhouse gases in excess of some amount. Mm -hmm. It's unimaginable that the ICJ would actually, you know, give you a schedule of what every country is allowed to um, release. Uh, but quite apart from that problem, even the ICJ did, no reasonable person could think that countries would respond to that edict. Um, the force of it, the strength of international law is simply not enough by itself to hold back the the commitments that states have, rightly, by the way, to seeking the economic welfare of their citizens. Mm -hmm. So it's not a solution. That said, um, it may be a great strategy in the same way that uh, the Maldives um, at one point held a cabinet meeting under the on the ocean floor right. to make the point that right. uh, they were sinking. Those might be called political stunts. Going to the ICJ is less of a stunt. Um, but they're not born of a desire for flamboyance. They're born of desperation. These countries are struggling for survival, and they don't have any tools. They don't have any economic tools. They don't have any military tools. They don't have strong diplomatic tools. So they're doing what they can. Um, the ICJ is one way to do that, even if they don't win. Frankly, it probably doesn't matter much whether they win or lose or what the ICJ does, as long as they can generate the attention. And and justly so, that is, those states should draw the attention of the world because they are victims of behaviors uh, in which they, from which they did not benefit, um, and they are helpless to do anything about it. That is, they could stop emitting greenhouse gases and it would have no effect on climate change. So I'm sympathetic, mm -hmm. and I have no criticism of the effort. I think 
it's correctly labeled a political act and perhaps the best the best thing they can do as you said i think part of the the drive for this campaign came from this feeling of climate injustice this lack of participation in international negotiation processes, which leads to my next question. Um, I had the opportunity to attend my first United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference in Doha this past November and December. And there are many criticisms about these annual conferences and its lack of progress, um, its excruciatingly slow pace, um, lack of participation, like I said. And do you think the UNFCCC and its Kyoto Protocol are adequate mechanisms for addressing climate change at the international level. Um, can or should they be reformed? Do you anticipate a new mechanism evolving? And just as a slight addendum to that, um, I was curious about hearing more about your work in the progress of the power of soft law um, in global governance. So it's, it's beyond dispute that Kyoto and the Framework Convention, at least to the extent it's manifest itself in something so far, are not nowhere near adequate to address the problem. In fact, arguably, they've achieved so close to nothing that um, uh, that's what we should call it. Mm. Um, but I think that's not entirely the right perspective. In order to address this problem, there's no way to address this problem without some form of international collaboration and cooperation. Exactly what that looks may not be clear, but but it can't have no one country can do it alone. Not not China, not the United States, not Europe. So some form of international cooperation is required. And the only way to get that is to have countries talk to each other. So the idea that you would meet and talk seems like an entirely good idea, which is really what the Framework Convention is doing today. That's its main function. Um, so annual meetings or meetings in whatever period you want are not a solution, but they're a necessary part of any solution. So I am, like many people, frustrated by the lack of progress. Um, I don't hold tremendous optimism that there'll be a sudden breakthrough in the very near future. But the alternative of not meeting is clearly worse. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to get progress, it, one, part of the problem is not an international problem. In order to get progress, you need the states to want progress. I am reasonably confident, well, let's say four years ago, I would have been quite confident that the United States was not interested in a equitable, balanced, global deal to curb greenhouse gas emissions. That were such a thing created, uh, and if there was some reason to believe that every country that ag would agree to it and every country would actually comply with those commitments, I don't think the United States would have joined. As long as that's true, we can't hope for the international system to fix that problem. That problem is a domestic problem. If countries are willing to do it, Europe appears willing to do something. China might be willing to do something. India doesn't show much sign of being willing to do something. And the United States has shown no sign of willing, being willing to do something, though maybe Obama's State of the Union speech signals some change, at least at the presidential level. Uh, but until states are willing to do it, the international system can't do it by itself because the international system is nothing but the states. It's important that states talk to each other. I think that the periodic, the regular meetings do increase the pressure on everybody. They make transparent 
or at least they raise awareness about the problem. The media covers it. It's, it's in the news. I think that's all a good thing. So I'm supportive of the idea of these meetings, but I am not particularly enthusiastic about what they've done so far, which is close to nothing, um, nor do I think that it, any day now we'll get a breakthrough. Well, Professor Guzman, thank you so much for your time today and a fascinating conversation. Again, his book is called Overheated, The Human Cost of Climate Change. I hope that people read it and we can start bridging that barrier to more meaningful action. Thank you. Thank you very much.